Welcome to episode 38 of Super Entertainment Presents the Telgen Crossover Universe on the Grand Gignol Network, coming to you from Castle Wolfenstein, hosted. Joining me as usual are the cool one, Crazy Ivan Shabowski, lover of cheese and my imaginary friend, the classy one, James Boyachuk, CEO of 18th Wall Productions, and the pun master, Chris Nigro, author and founder of Wild Hunt Press. And I am the Robert Ronsky, professional geek and creepy weirdo. We are the TVCU crew. The TVCU crew are a team of crossovers who devote way too much of their time to connecting the dots through official crossovers and Easter eggs in order to demonstrate a shared fictional reality that we call the Telgen Crossover Universe. This is the intellectual show about trivial things. Also joining us tonight is Patrick Rayall, a.k.a. Patsy the Angry Nerd, host of Throwdown Thursday, which is probably the show most like ours also found on the Grand Geek Doll Network. Uh, and now, our shameless plugging segment. Uh, so, Patsy, welcome to our show. Oh, Good hey, thanks for having me. And uh, so, so this is uh, the first part we start off with is our shameless plugs. Uh, since you're our guest today, we figured uh, uh start you off if you have anything you want to plug. Uh, I actually do. Um, I, uh, in addition to being a member of the New England Horror Writers and having a couple of books up on Amazon, uh, like Monsters in the Closet, available on paperback or Kindle. Uh, I also write for uh, BMC Project Media, and uh, we're actually switching our name over to uh, KCN, the uh, Kingsley Communications Network. Uh, it's a uh, an actual journalism site, you know, where we do real reporting on you know real live uh, events. I also uh, do a podcast on there, a movie review podcast that premieres every every Monday, uh, and you can find that on SoundCloud. Uh, in addition to the uh, the uh, main page, uh, bmcprojectmedia.com. I also do a, a, a written review of a movie once or twice a week. Cool. Cool. Yay. All right. Okay. Um, Chris, what about you? Got anything to plug? Well, <clears throat> considering the subject of today's episode, I am going to plug my upcoming Centurion novel, which is does have to do with superpowered teen see on topic and relevant yeah. and is completed and I'm hope to have out in a couple of months and an interesting complaint I have to make about that is it's going to be a highly autobiographic novel in many ways well totally fictionalized but highly autobiographical and I was thinking when I was writing it do I set it in the early 80s which was a time that corresponds to my life when the eight historical events and equivalents were going on or updated to the present. And I opted to update it to the present since I didn't sure the, wasn't sure the early 80s would be, you know, palatable with my audience. audiences. I think the way I said it was better. But anyway, <laughs> but, but anyway then um, Stranger Things come out and it's set in the early 80s, and everybody seems to love it. So, what do I know? <laughs> what We've do been you asking know? that ourselves for a while now. <laughs> well, I, I, I hope Centurion still sells, even though it's set in the modern era. I, I think I think some people do like modern era stuff. I, I, I see I see that once in a while something set in contemporary time. So yeah, I think you can appeal to that small specialized <laughs> audience. Yeah, but now I'm <laughs> Yeah, but now James, I'm going to have cell phones instead of those cool rotary phones. 
Yes, and being able to depict the high school kids walking around with rotary phones in their pockets would be a lot more entertaining. Uh, it's the nostalgia thing. Everybody yeah. seems to love nostalgia. What other reason was there to set the series in the early '80s? I'm getting ahead of my. I'm getting ahead of things, aren't I? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, let's say that. <laughs> okay, next plug. All right, Ivan, how about you? Well, I don't right. know if you can call it an accomplishment or not, but for me, it's something. I actually finished updating all the pictures for the, some people call me crazy. I heard, I've heard like half of that. You're better than me. Oh. I'm Need sorry. To put the Nobody can down. hear me, huh? I'm right in the spot where I normally get great signal. Terrible okay. Time. You're a little All bit better. Now. Was, okay. You know what? Let's just assume I don't have anything to talk about. I don't have to repeat all that. <laughs> okay. All right. On to you, James, how okay. about you? <laughs> well, I have two plugs relating to our horror western series, Dead West. First... Nicole's been going over the edits for the second volume, making sure everything's A-OK and ready to go since she's our series editor. And she has discovered that the second novel is moving into TVCU podcast territory with a few sly winks to Karnacki the Ghostfinder. One of us, one of us. (laughs) And further, relating to Dead West, right now until the end of August... The Story Bundle, storybundle.com, is running a weird Western special. A month for a very low price, you can get 10 weird West novels, among them the very first volume of Dead West, West of Pale. So, if you like weird Westerns, you like Karnacki, or you like sales, get on down to storybundle.com and snap it up. That's all I've got. Hey, I love cheap stuff. Then you know the site you need to go to. Storybundle.com I wonder how much they'll pay me for every time I say that. <laughs> right? <laughs> Alright. Um, for my plugs. So I promise next week is the last of the Scaracon plugs. Um, but I did meet a lot of cool people at Scaracon, uh, which was a long time ago now. And I promised to plug everyone I got a card from. Uh, so this week I'm going to mention Madzy Productions. Uh, this is a company that has uh, many films that you can find at madzproductions.com. Uh, the one they were showing at the con was a, a, a movie called Killing Brook, which was a very interesting movie, uh, which I found fascinating because uh, it had a nice twist in it. Um, and I was going to mention what the twist was, but I, I think you should probably watch it to uh, to find out for yourself. I don't want to spoil it. Um, also, uh, we're going to be doing... Um, uh, an episode at another convention. We're going to go to Rock and Shock on October 16th um, and run around and try to get uh, some celebrities to uh, talk to us like last time. Um, and so that should be a lot of fun. And um, and I want to do a shameful plug. Um, the last two episodes of another podcast called Pulp Crazy, uh, Jason Aiken's podcast, um, uh, were were recordings of um, panels from um, uh, FarmerCon and PulpFest, and um, you know uh, our audience really likes Farmer and really likes Pulp, and uh, these were both fascinating uh, panels. 
the Pharmacon panel was about uh, was all people who had worked with Philip Jose Farmer, and the Pulp Fest one was just a bunch of um, modern pulp writers. Um, and uh, you know, there's a lot of the, the writing process and the beat, you know, and uh, some really cool, cool, cool stuff. So um, I want recommend those. Uh, I'd like fine. to jump in on that one really quickly. Okay. Jason is putting up even more of the recorded sittings and also speeches and panels up on his YouTube channel, which is also called Pulp Crazy. He's been putting up like one a day for the last week and a half. Nice. I got to I got to check that out because um the 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 podcast ones are really cool. So Yeah. Um and finally, um just just another Shame, shameless plug, the, the Horror Crossover Encyclopedia 2nd Edition is coming out this fall. Um, new Matt cover, a new forward by Trick or Treat Radio and Elm Street Kid Movie Club's own Dynamo Mars. Uh, selected revised entries. Um, so be sure to look out for that. Um, and if you're really into analyzing crossovers, why don't you pick up the current version of the Horror Crossover Encyclopedia and then you can compare notes to see which entries are revised. <laughs> You'll win a no prize. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you your res- a lot of respect for <laughs> for doing the work. Um, so um, last week I, I announced that um, we would be joined this week by Jamie Ramos and David Michelani, uh, but unfortunately something came up, um, as sometimes things do. Um, so they will come back on at a point in the future. Uh, so stay tuned because after the commercial break, we're going to be doing a discussion of a popular new show filled with crossovers called Stranger Things. Uh, so we'll be right back. All right, we're back. James, would you like to start us off? It would be my pleasure. Ah, the 80s. Wouldn't it be great if you could go back, vote for Thatcher and Reagan once again, and sit back and rewatch one of horror's best decades in theaters? Netflix agrees with you. Today, we're talking about Stranger Things. Spoilers, though. Spoilers, for the love of God, spoilers. If you haven't watched the whole first season, go away right now. Really, watch them all. Come back to us. It's only eight hours. You'll enjoy it, we promise. We'll hope you understand it. Now... I'd like to point out that though I'm introducing the episode, I am the only host who wasn't alive in the 1980s. <laughs> How's that for a stranger thing? Now, before we move into crossovers proper, I'd like to talk about the show itself. Give you a little bit of context, just in case you didn't listen to me and watch the show. Stranger Things is the Stephen King miniseries too good for 80s TV, but it runs rampant with all of King's stock tropes. Small town, of crafty and horrors, the horror of normal people, everything's collapsing. You know the drill. But instead of stocking this world with Stephen King's characters and character tropes, Stranger Things is populated with the characters of other popular 80s movie genres. The first plot thread is about a group of children. Now, as much as people on the internet want to say, oh, it's E.T., it's E.T., I swear it's E.T., Aside from some key visual references, it has nothing in common with E.T. Instead, they're the Goonies. From specific character tropes, because Mike is Mikey, which is probably the cleverest character rename of them all. Dustin slash Toothless is Chunk. Lucas is Mouth, but with Data's skill at technology and weapons. Barb is so obviously Steph, it hurts. And Nancy is Andy. The honorary Goonie, their sloth, is a little girl named Eleven. 
and she is mainly pulled from Firestarter. We'll talk about her more later. The second plot, Jonathan and Nancy's, is about two teenagers defending their town from a monster. Point by point, this belongs to that peculiar 80s subgenre of mostly serious horror films, where teens took on Hollywood monsters. Fright Night, Silver Bullet, Near Dark, arguably The Lost Boys. But it follows Fright Night most of all, which makes me happy. That's not serious, though. And those were kids. That was pretty serious. Loved Monster Squad. I saw a lot of it in there. I saw Monster Squad. Um, I saw Monster Squad mixed with Goonies, mixed with a bit of um, Stand By Me, Kid You Not. And uh, I, I saw a lot of that mixed together. It was a total uh, gestalt of all that cool stuff from the era. Right. And, and, and Third plot. Joyce yeah, and Sheriff Jim Hopper is his every 80s ghost story and thriller. It's much less distinctly one or two films in particular, less with the other plots, and it's mainly scenes and moments stolen from every example you can think of. Now that we've got some basics down, let's open the floor. What did you all think of Stranger Things? Just, just going on uh, what Chris just said, I would also argue that um, Nancy was um, inspired by Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street, and there was a lot of visual to Nightmare on Elm Street as well. Yeah, like her going in. The episode was The Weirdo on Maple Street. Right, right. There was a title reference. There was the creature coming through the wall. You know, you know, her going into like a, you know, an alternate state of mind reality, and you know, uh, yeah, all kinds of stuff. And she's named Nancy. <laughs> I do have to disagree with one thing though. Uh, Dustin being a stand-in for Chunk. Um, while he fits the kind of aesthetic that Chunk brought, Chunk was essentially useless. Dustin was highly intelligent and, yeah. you know, kind of nah, held everybody together. To, they're the exact same trope. It's just a difference of how much they get to do in the plot. They are literally the same character otherwise. Yeah, but, he, but, but he was basically Dustin the fact that he was more food. Than any other non-adult character. I missed the beginning of that. I missed most of it. He said that said Chunk Dustin was the most was competent, competent character. Not competent. I'm sorry, oh, Dustin yeah, yeah. was the most competent. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. Like, just you know, he's that's who he is. You know, in that you know, in the grand scheme of things, like that would be his his representation. But you know, I just uh, I guess I just don't they like serve the same plot function. It's just they give Dustin a few added moments for oh, you're the most useful. You're the most intelligent, but. In plot, in character development, in every other way, he's literally just junk. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I just, you know, I wish there was a better comparison for him, that's all. But, but yeah, in, in the Goonies aspect, that's definitely who he was supposed to be. But they did add more dimension to him. Um, Appropriate work. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I will, <laughs> say this, sorry, I will say this for Dustin. He was the glue that held that team together. He intervened when Lucas and Mike were fighting, and he held that whole group together. He was the common sense of the group. Yeah, he Hopefully wasn't he's like, the kid protagonist in season two. Yeah, he wasn't just like a comic foil, like, oh, I'm watching a car chase. Oh, I spilled my milkshake all over my face and smeared pizza on the wall. Oh, I'm so charmingly, you know, you know, screwed up. You know, like... Useless. Yeah. Spe- speaking of Lucas, I'm pretty sure that he was, his name derives from the movie of the same name from the 80s. Entirely well. possible. Yeah. 
I know you guys won't agree with me. I think you won't anyways. That's my theory. But I saw a little bit of um, Hiram, the fat kid from Monster Squad and Dustin. I mean, Dustin didn't get to do anything as cool as take out a vampire with a slice of pizza, mind you. But I, I, I did see some influence there. You know, they were a bunch of nerds. Hey, it was Horace. Yeah, Horace. I'm sorry, Horace. Uh, fat kid, I remember. He was his main thing. So, yeah. But anyways... um. I still saw some of that influence going there, and I saw some of Carrie White in Eleven. I'm sorry. The hero she should have become, in my opinion. Well, I think that's an obvious parallel because of the telekinetic powers. Right. Yeah. But but she definitely... Um, she definitely was channeling... Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, she was definitely channeling uh, Drew Barrymore. Um, yeah. As was the little sister... Um, also was channeling Drew Barrymore from E.T. Yes. Um, in yes. some moments, you know, whereas, whereas uh, Eleven was channeling uh, Drew Barrymore from Firestarter. Well, I think that's just a, another nod to the, the Stephen King influence where, you know, yeah. Carrie White and I forget what her name was in Firestarter. Firestarter. Charlie McKee. <laughs> yeah, Charlie, right? Yes. Charlie. Uh, Charlie was- McKee. She was Gertie in E.T., remember? And is right. that with the one little girl with the, with the long, funky pigtails? You Right, probably, right. She was, Gertie. yeah, I think she was very much meant to uh, that. And, yeah, I mean, uh, Dustin there, I mean, he, he, was, he was Chunk. He was the, the fat kid from Monster Squad. He was, the, he was the fat kid from Stand By Me. You know, that, that, that's a very 80s thing, that a group of nerdy kids, and one of them has to be the fat kid. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's just a that's just a, a trope. I think it was also kind of messed up that they, you know, they were like, "Oh, look, he loves pudding. Pudding's his favorite thing." It's like, yeah, because he doesn't have any teeth. Right, the only thing he can eat. Right. Oh, well, that's true. Like he has a disability that you know he has to. <laughs> well, if you want to put it that way, <laughs> you're putting uh, it that way. Okay, sorry, sorry. but but you, you know what else? Um, you know that the 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 leech vomiting scenes. Did, did, that, did that remind you guys at all of that classic leech scene from Stand By Me? Could that have been an homage, maybe? You mean the ending? Yeah, well, no, there, there was another scene. Victims of, of, of the Demogorgon would, would tend to vomit leeches. And, and, and I, think it, it, I think that was some alien slash xenomorph influence there because I think he, he was... Were they being impregnated with... I, we won't find I think out... It, I, yeah, I felt the alien connection, but I also felt... I don't know... It also felt a little bit like Slither, which in itself was um, somebody remind me there was a horror. Yeah, wasn't there? Wasn't and wasn't there another like worm like alien worm like movie in the eighties that um, I yeah, can't remember? Yeah, I can't think of it off the top of my head. I didn't think that scene specifically really harkened back to aliens for me. I was thinking more the cocooning and the the walking through the the upside down when they found like the egg. You know, that yeah, was definitely yeah. a throwback. What I thought of when I saw the uh, the slug vomiting scene was uh, the beginning of Wrath of Khan. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a slight different thing because it was going in through their ear, but a similar type of right. type of thing because, you know, there was that altered state of consciousness when, you know, you, you either uh, inter or expel the uh, the slug there. Patrick, I think you inadvertently hit on the name we were looking for, that movie from the 80s, Slugs, remember? Oh, all right, that might be it, yeah. 
It was good accidental thinking there, man. That's what I do best. <laughs> and did it not remind you of that classic leech scene from Stand By Me? I mean, one got down in the kids, that poor kid's drawers. Remember that scene? That I thought there was an homage. There was a, a some one of the homages. It was mo- it was a multi homage film. Oh yes, did, there's so much. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, there was a lot. I mean, Stephen King, Steven Spielberg, a little bit of John Hughes. Yeah, uh, you know, and a lot of eighties horror. Oh yeah, the entire yeah. the entire high school thing was definitely John Hughes mixed with, uh, I would say the bullies either from it or from uh, Carrie. Yeah. So you mean we got some breakfast? Every Stephen King book. Yeah. Incidentally, the most interesting twist of this, and again, there this is a spoiler episode, so screw you if you didn't watch it. Uh, <laughs> we warned you. Is that they took um, the very traditional trope of like, like oh he's with she's with the bad boy and then she learns the error of her ways and uh, leaves the bad boy for the the boy next door type of thing, and they flip that and it like every girl's fantasy of dating and I, maybe I'm being a little sexist here, um, you know uh, maybe I'll get some comments after but um. You know, every girl's fantasy is, oh, I'm dating the bad boy because I can reform him and make him, and with my love, I can make him better. And that actually happened. Like, <laughs> I'm like, this is a terrible lesson to women because now they're all going to be like, oh, see, it can happen. Yeah, except I can he, stay with the bully and he can become nice. But he <laughs> had he had redeeming yeah. qualities to him, though. Like, right, right, right. I know, really wish they had killed him. That annoyed every I, single writer alarm in my head because felt, as an editor, I would have made that go over because everything yeah. was set up for him to perfectly die in right, that see, situation at the end, either redemptive or as a coward. His plot led there. Like all of the stuff in him led there, and then he survives and gets the girl. I think that's that's the, the only reason I can think of that they would do that is that. It was so predictable. Like, he's going to come in, and, like, there's this slowly budding romance between her and uh, Will's older brother there. And, like, everyone saw that coming a hundred miles away, and they're like, you know what? We're just going to twist it just a little. I think they only did it in order to help guarantee a sequel. Yeah, because I think that's the beginning and end of the reasoning. They needed a stronger hook to guarantee that second season, so she ends up with him. Like, there's still a chance, like, the way so she looked at him when she gave him the Christmas present. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, but, you know, but, but he was, like, he was, like, happy she gave him the camera. Like, he was, like, oh, did you give it to him? And, like, he was, like, a nice guy. Because in the beginning, he was a nice guy. But I, I, I knew immediately because he wants to have sex with her. <laughs> That's the only reason he's charming and nice. And and that was and his like, reputation because she mentions that to him. She goes, I'm not right, going to be that right, other right. girl. It's like, oh, right, you mean like, not a slut? But yeah. then he fell for her for real. So maybe, let's look at it this way, guys. Maybe um, bad boys who see it, a lot of them will realize maybe I should be a better person. See, that was definitely a non-Stephen King trope because I've found with pretty much every Stephen King bully, there is no redeeming quality yeah, whatsoever. Right, that's why Well, you guys know what I feel about bullies. I mean, okay, we know bullies in real life are three-dimensional people, but, you know, they're... They are have, they? Well, okay, let's Citation look at Citation needed. <laughs> okay, let's look at it this way. 
they have no redeeming qualities to us as far as we're concerned per- personally. The victims, they show no redeeming qualities to usually, but we kind of sort of know intellectually they have family. I'll just be tackling this. Are you sure? I, I, like, <laughs> I like to think that, that they don't just materialize. When I went to school, they didn't just materialize there from hell just to terrorize. I like to think that, and then vanish. Every, every, every bully is bullied, and every bully um, does so out of a projection of, of uh, as a defense mechanism. So, <laughs> I had a friend who was a who who became a bully, uh, but his home life was really really shitty. So, uh, I mean, sometimes they're just a rich snotty kid, but a lot of times they're just they're really shitty lives <laughs> behind the scenes. Um, but that's what I found interesting. The the most interesting twist was was that in the end, the bully and the the girl live happily ever after. And I was not expecting, yeah, for now. But I was not expecting that. But then again, there was going to be I mean, uh, you know, more than one season. So I'm sure there will be more. You know, they probably want to keep him around. Yeah. But you know, what's cool about Jonathan guys. Um, unlike a lot of these movie tropes, he was the underdog character, you know, that everyone thinks is nuts and everything. He didn't get the girl, but it didn't bust him up about it. He he was cool on his own. I mean, he was worried totally about his brother. That's what I liked about the character. That was his sole motivation. What did you, I'm, you know, just on, on the, the thing with the bullies real quick, uh, what did you think of the... the uh, the escalation of the aggression that the, the 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 younger kids bullies were, you know, going from "Hey, do that arm thing" to "I'm gonna cut your throat if you don't if your friend doesn't jump off this cliff." I thought uh, that I was that was pretty accurate. It was good. My main problem is that they survived so neatly without worse damage, which felt really weird. Almost like a sensor came in at the end of that episode and nudged a few things. Yeah, it seems well, like I mean once. Yeah, I mean well, once he was, um, you know, once he was humiliated in front of everybody, the only way to redeem himself was to do something worse. You know, that's that's kind of how bullies <laughs> typically are. See, that's the risk of well, standing up to them. You know, they always say stand up to them, but see, that's one of the risks you take if you do. Yeah, I mean, that's the only way to deal with them, really. You have to do something so over-the-top that they cannot recover. Well, look at, look at you know, the, the whole Jonathan Which is arc. how I handled it, yeah. I mean, Jonathan did not do it properly at all. Well, he did beat the hell out of Steve. I mean, that, that yeah. I think that was yeah. some of us formally bullied. But beating up John Ralphio doesn't solve things. See, I said the exact same thing to my wife. I was like, holy shit, that kid is John Ralphio. <laughs> yeah, but see, that that's one of the things I struggle with, you know, when writing my Centurion novel, another shameless plug. And uh, and that's also something I discussed with, you know, our guest, um, Felissa Rose, regarding the character of Angela Baker. Beating How up far- John Ralphio? <laughs> Man, I must have fallen asleep. That must be our greatest <laughs> episode ever. You were taking it, come on. Not that exactly. What I was actually thinking of, though, was how far is too far in terms of self-defense against bullies. I mean, you know, obviously we can't go around killing them, but how far is too far? I mean, 
uh, um, 11 broke that one kid's arm. I mean, I didn't feel bad for him. I didn't think that was too far. She didn't slaughter him, didn't do an Angela Baker on him, but, and you know. she could have. Yeah, she could have. Considering did, what she did to all of the shadowy government agency types, yeah, she easily could have killed him. And she didn't even I have would, that much motivation right. for some of the people she killed. I would bet $5 that in the original draft of the script, she popped his brain. Because of how little of a deal the show makes of it when they pop the shadow government guy's brains, like it had already been set up and made a big deal over. I would yeah, but they, but they were, but the they were, draft, they popped that kid's brain. I would, but they were adult government bad guys as opposed to kids who are just mean. Here's my my take on on that. Um, I think that if she had just met these guys and this happened in episode two, yes, but. You know, the influence that uh, Mike had had on her the entire time, like she was starting to become, you know, like a different, per- like yeah. a real kid. I mean, it makes sense and you can defend it. But yeah, I it's a character just, arc. I don't have any problem with it friend happening friend so much as it's really clear that they edited the script. Oh, yeah. She, she should have like snapped him in half backwards like an almond biscotti. So before Turning we get on. Inside Out would have been fun. What the hell is yeah. an almond biscotti? Oh, it's like a. Sorry. Like a breadstick, French like cookie, cookie you eat with your coffee. Yeah, you dunk it's it a very in. hard cookie that you dunk. Yeah. So before, before, <laughs> before we get on to the crossovers, because we really should probably talk about crossovers since that's what we're, our show is about. Uh, but I, I uh, Chris brought up something, you know, talking about how he had a similar idea, and now it's messed up. So back in the eighties, I wrote a story about a teenage girl uh, with telekinetic and telepathic powers who escapes from the from a government facility where they were experimenting with her and gets taken in by a teenage boy uh, and hidden while the government's looking for her. So I just want to say that uh, these guys owe me some money. <laughs> That's exactly right. Plagiarized, Rob. Totally plagiarized. That's right. Well, you can get the line behind Stephen King and Steven Spielberg and John Hughes. That's right. Hey, I had not seen Firestarter. I had not seen Firestarter either when I <laughs> when I wrote that. So <laughs> don't feel bad, Rob, because this one guy I used to know in college got similarly plagiarized because he wrote a very similar story like that too. So you both got plagiarized, or did one use plagiar the other? And and uh, uh, I, I don't know. It's a vicious circle. Every, I don't know, but I know John Ralphio is at fault. Yes. Every everybody everybody <laughs> plagiarizes me. <laughs> you know, I'm almost glad to be me and not this Fagio. John Ralphio? Yeah, John Ralphio. I'm almost glad to be me instead of him. Because you're bashing that poor guy so badly. <laughs> did, he, right. did, did he pee in your cereal one morning? What did he do? <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we, have, we, have a, we have about 20 minutes left. So let's talk about some of the crossovers, the, the ones that were clearly valid and some of the theoretical ones that we saw some connections to. No more airtime to why he doesn't like that DeFaggio guy? Okay. That's right. Ralphio. Ralphio. Yeah. Okay, so legit or not legit? Well, the very... The one absolutely ironclad, legitimate crossover is when Eleven is in the psychic scape, the black, oily cycle. That psychic scape that is as black as John Ralphio's heart. This is a crossover with 
This is a crossover with the recent horror movie Under the Skin, which starred Scarlett Johansson as an alien and or other dimensional killer that was carving through men on her way to some inexplicable goal. Every one of her kills took place in this psychic space. So she would probably be from the same, from the upside down. Probably. And you know what? Based on what you just said, based on what you just said, I think that lends credence, more credence to my crossover theory of uh, Chief Jim Hopper being the Jim Hopper from Predator. You know, because we see him at the end of uh, end of the last episode. You're not quite at the end, but after the main confrontation, that uh, he is taken by the shadowy government. Uh, executives there and uh, they load him into his car and if you know the Scarlett Johansson type character you know and and Eleven are very similar in in their abilities it stands to reason that he's got you know experience dealing with some sort of you know alien or extra dimensional beings that he would be sent uh, down to the uh, South American jungles to combat you know the uh, the demon that makes trophies of men camouflage alien in other words yeah yeah he didn't seem to have much knowledge of aliens when he was there but i guess that could have been a facade he could have been you know pretending just for the sake of government secrecy he did have a a pretty good skill set as far as you know a being able to handle himself physically and b uh you know being able to you know get into this highly secure uh military almost uh, scientific installation you know as well as you know he was very adept at handling large firearms as well maybe that's a, a training that cops got back in the early 80s I no, don't no. know <laughs> but no, even even coming from being a city cop to being a, a, a small town cop he was he was he was like special forces like qualified you know he, he, he took out like several you know, state cops or government cops or whatever they were, you know, single-handedly that were all armed, you know. That yeah. guy go toe-to-toe with Charles Ingalls. He was really a good pugilist. I did notice that about him. Andy handled so being a, tortured. That, you know, maybe when he was uh, a cop in the big city, it was Raccoon City. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he learned to kick arse from somewhere, that's for certain, and do it quite well. Yeah, he was not the trope that I expected him to be. Like, when they first show him, I, I look at my wife, I'm like, yeah, that'll be the chief of police, you know, rolling out of bed late, popping pills and drinking, you know, schlitz at the same time. Like, yeah, that's the, that's the, the sheriff or the, the chief or whatever. Because that- it, was, it was a popular beer back then. That was a cool bit of nostalgia. I remember yeah. the schlitz commercial. Sorry, you just... I got hit with a nostalgia. It's a place in Indiana, and Schlitz was a very Midwest beer, so yeah. That, that, that was, was appropriate. Better. That was even better appropriate, Patrick. That was awesome. Mm-hmm. You could have said any beer, but you said Schlitz. That's what he was drinking. That's what he was drinking, yeah. Yeah, I missed that little detail, and I, I'm usually looking for product placements. You know, like I saw that, uh, re- remember Coke Is It? Oh, yeah. I saw that commercial in, like, 30 years. I'm, I'm not that old. I was very little then, trust me. But anyway, um, I remember the Coke is it campaign. Yep, yep. I do too. So, yeah. so another crossover um, 
was uh, Silent Hill. Yes. Which, which, as James uh, could explain better, you know, because I've never played the game, uh, but it was basically a direct homage or ripoff <laughs> thematically of... Um, Whatever you would like to call it, it was literally yeah. Silent Hill in every regard. It yeah. matches it. The upside down is Silent Hill. Yeah, unless they do something in later seasons to overturn that. Yeah, because it's it was it's an altered state. Yeah, an altered state of consciousness that takes place essentially right on top of you know the quote unquote real world, and I mean right down to the the um, the little bits of I don't know even what you want to call it like debris ash. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I think around. it's ash. Yeah. All the buildings are mimicked on the Upside Down, even though the Upside Down doesn't appear to have anybody living there that would have built them. Yeah. So it's clearly a Shadow Realm duplication of the real world, which is what Silent Hill is. Created by mind, created by magic. Either way, it's created from people's perceptions of what the real world is or was. Let me come right out and say it. It reminded, reminded me of the Dark Side from Tales of the Dark Side. What little description of it we got from the opening credits, that what it reminded me of. Fair enough. Not uh, everyone seemed to think so, because I only got, oh, I got credit from two, okay. And, um, and the Firestarter connection, um, you know, you guys had me, uh, had to take some, some arm twisting to convince me, but, um... I, I could see it now, especially with the nosebleeds and the stuff like that. They were it's more than just oh a government government conspiracy and, and uh you know, it was more than an homage because they, they really took uh, a lot of the same elements. Um so I, I could see that um For me uh, what clinches it is the brain scan machine that they have yeah. on her head at one moment, which is clearly just a more primitive version of the one from Firestarter. Not quite as advanced as the one from Ghostbusters. Ivan, right. could that have been the shop, Ivan? Absolutely, yes. They do, every now and then, book give names for what the shop really is called. But it's not consistent from book to book. And everyone just calls it the shop. See, and I got, I got that. we have Hawkin National Lab, which also would have been the shop. There's no reason that nothing at all suggests it's not the shop. And the first thing I thought of when, you know, thing, you know, as far as the, the Firestarter connection was when they started getting into MKUltra, because that's essentially what the shop was, you know, obviously a little more insidious and a little more uh, clandestine. But I think that was that's to me what triggered it, because, you know, you have the, the pregnant mother giving, you know, going through these these treatments and these these, uh, you know, these. Uh, being subject to all this, you know, random injections of different psychotropic drugs, and then all of a sudden, you know, oh, I was pregnant, here's my kid, my kid has powers. Like, that's that's where I got the connection. There was another right. connection. The difference being, though, that MKUltra in the real world was run by the CIA. Right. Whereas, apparently, it was run by Hawkins National Lab in the world of Stranger Things. Uh, another fire starter connection. Well, Ivan, you noticed, too, it wasn't just um, Charlie's um, pyrokinesis, but remember the weird mental powers her father had? I saw that as another That's, sort of... Of course. The fact, you know, grown-ups were experimented on and then job harvest the children or tried to harvest the children 
to create uh, super-powered soldiers, which is exactly what the shop did. And I'm never... It's a little bit above and beyond what the MK Ultra program was in the real world, at least. Yeah. I'll never forget that ultra creepy music or sound that came in every time her father used his power. It's like, duh, 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 duh. yeah, still terrifies me just to think of it. But yeah, that I guess that's another connection. So I, I and if this is a Stephen King production, come on, it, I, I think it was more than just uh, you know coincidental on his part. I agree with that. And he loves doing connections throughout all his books and movies, etc. No matter how minor they might be. Right, right. I'm surprised Hawkins wasn't in Maine, as a matter of fact. Well, I'd be surprised if they wanted to have their own state. Yeah, yeah, it, it felt like it, it should have been in Maine. <laughs> but, but you know, Indiana is, is, is you know... That's the home of Aerie, Indiana, from the, that series from the '80s about where you all the weird stuff. Well, yeah, my, yeah, well, where my, all the all the weird stuff happened, and the kids were were the ones who had to investigate all the strange things yeah. going on. Another uh, '80s. It was from the '90s, not the '80s, but yeah, that was called. Another connection. Yeah, it, was, it was early '90s, though, wasn't it? Yes, it was very That's early '90s. Yeah. I know it's cool. My hometown of Buffalo is located in Erie County, New York. Isn't that? Awesome. That's eerie. Ew. <laughs> that, was, that was ornery. I'm sorry. But anyway, yeah. No, no, come on. When I do it. <laughs> I, I have a style when I do it. I, there's, there's pizzazz behind my... What's, what's that? Wait a minute, Ivan. Wasn't that the name of a Marvel magazine? Sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. It was pizzazz. They're talking about pizzazz. Oh, okay. Yes, Pizzazz was a was a Marvel uh, magazine, uh, a promotional magazine for kids in the seventies that went nowhere. Am I correct? Very nowhere. Yeah. Okay. I have one so other thing. I do have one other thing that I I don't know if this counts so much, but um, when the kids are racing their bikes home and. Who is it? It's Lucas and Dustin that are racing their bikes home? Or is it, no, it's Will. Will and Dustin. And Will wins, even though he cheated. Uh, that's why he got sucked into the underworld there, because he cheated on the bike race. Uh, he says, I get your X-Men number 134. The end of X-Men 134, uh, Jean Grey, who is noted for her you know, telepathic and telekinetic uh, abilities, oh, yeah. smashes her opponent uh, up against the wall and, and pretty much crushes him. Very, <clears throat> I would say almost identical to the way that uh, that uh, Eleven does to the Demogorgon. Mm. I don't know if that's more of an homage or if that you know I don't know if yeah you know. I would think that'd be probably just, more homage, but um, yeah, since it doesn't imply the X Men are real in the Stranger Things universe. Yeah, right. I would, see, I, I wasn't sure what your criteria. Star exactly Wars, X Men, even movies like The Thing and Evil Dead, which do have references in there, but. There's no doubting that uh, Joyce's house looked an awful lot like the cabin in the woods from Evil Dead. Right. So mm-hmm. anything where they say explicitly it's fiction couldn't really be a crocker. Unless, yeah. unless those posters were for documentaries. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, we haven't mentioned that nerdy um, science teacher yet who knew about everything, like how to build a cryonic tank and about other other dimensions and everything. We haven't mentioned him yet. He well, was kind of nerdy. Depressed. 
He was a nerdy science teacher. But he was interested. Right yeah. But I just see him at the crossover. Unless he was supposed to represent Frank Oz. And you know, he was he was that he was like the Giles. You know, he was the 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 expert that you go you know that's a common trope like you have to have some expert that knows everything about everything that you can consult with your <laughs> with your your situation he knew he he could describe the dustin over the phone <laughs> right he's like i'm in the middle of making out with a girl but uh okay hold on but you you got my interest here we go. that's how you can tell he's a true science nerd <laughs> right, right. He got Wait, distracted yep. from the girl. <laughs> but he was having a Come, Coming from where I am in life, I felt so bad for him when he got that call. Yeah. And then when he started to go ahead and answer the questions, I thought, well, you deserve it. Oh, okay. right, the right. life you built yourself. Guys, before we adjourn, I have a relevant trivia question about the series for Patrick. What were the three derogatory nicknames that the bullies had for Dustin, Mike, and Lucas? All right. Um, shit. Nope. Close, but not quite. <laughs> Frogface was one of them. Yes! That was Mikey. Um, I'm, I'm drawing a complete blank with the other two. Dustin well, was Lucas was something that was generically uh, black-related. I, I I can't remember. All I remember is frog. Oh, right, but there was, was like a theme going with with them. Dustin was pretty obvious. His his pejorative nickname. Yeah. Toothless. Toothless. <laughs> yes. Oh, there's a connection to How to Train Your Dragon. Oh yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. What, what were the other two? Frogface. Frogface and and toothless and. I, f- I forget what, what Lucas's was. Yeah, we forget, Chris, so tell Chris, us the answer. No, I did, too. I knew it a couple seconds ago. Damn it. Uh, this is embarrassing. That's why I write all my stuff down. Otherwise, I'm going to completely forget. But, uh, so, I, you know, getting back to the cabin in the woods thing, now I'm thinking that, um, like, underneath the, the Department of Energy was yet another government facility. Like the hive? <laughs> that, was, that, that, like, cabin in the woods. That was, like... Like orchestrating this whole thing. Well, I was thinking like, like the okay, we company. got the virgin, we got the <laughs> the jock, <laughs> we got the brain. Clearly, we did not have all the archetypes in place to be sacrificed this time. Yeah, nobody but had yeah, a motorcycle. I mean, yeah, but it makes me think that um, like that, like the um, the earlier the earlier part where they have the pool party was mm-hmm. the failed attempt. <laughs> was not, like not a for Barb, it wasn't. It was very failed because the virgin died. Right. That's true. The, the Lost Boys comparison, we didn't throw that one in there. Wasn't there a little bit of the Lost Boys in there, maybe? Even if just a little? I we, mentioned it barely. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny little thing for the Fright Night plot line. I'm totally we have that. teenagers fighting monsters and no one else believes them, at least at first. Yeah. I mean, that's like every but, 80s horror movie. Wait a minute, though. Do we know that Barb was a virgin, or are we just assuming that because she wore mom jeans? She was a virgin. When I call her a virgin, I am only saying that she fits the archetype as described in the book. Which did not require you to actually be a virgin. What's interesting, that's another trope I didn't think about that got flipped on its, on its edge, because usually the girl who has sex 
the first girl to be seen having sex in the movie uh, dies like right away. Usually mid act. But and the virgin and the virgin lives. But in this case, Nancy was the was the one who had the, had gave it away and and should have uh, died, <laughs> and her friend should have lived. Well, thank goodness she wasn't in a slasher movie. Right. Because yeah. she, Nancy definitely would have died rather than Barb if this had been a slasher. Right. That's yeah, a good thing that the kids chose the Demogorgon as the monster. Yeah, that's that's what they chose. They chose it by playing D&D in the basement. <laughs> it wasn't even Gozer the Destructor. Uh, Gozer the Gozerian. Right. Other big bit of nostalgia. Or a giant marshmallow. Right. When they, when they were clearing out the one kid's uh, um, room, and the, 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 we got a quick shot of the board game dungeon. Do any of you remember that board game? It was awesome. I do not. I, had I owned the game, yes. I played it a few times. I did not really enjoy it as much as I had hoped. I, I mean, I liked it. It wasn't role-playing. It was a, a board game trying to act like, trying to throw some role-playing game characteristics to it. Obviously born out of Dungeons and Dragons, but I liked it. We used to spend hours, me and my friends, playing that. I know we're, we're getting close on time, uh, but I just yeah, I, there's one thing. I just, I'm going to bring this up real, real quick. Um, how come Will got all these different things and everybody cared about Will, but nobody gave a damn about Barb disappearing? Yeah. Oh. Well, Nancy did. You know, everybody cares about Barb. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, all these assemblies and, like, you know, all this stuff going on. It's like, oh, we're going to talk about Will and remember him. And then it's like, oh, Barb, yeah, yeah, straight-A student. You know, she's on her way to college, you know, going to graduate with honors. Well, in the case of Barb, if you remember, the shadowy government agency arranged to have her car found at the bus station to make it appear that she was a runaway instead of a missing child. Yeah, which That's didn't true. make any right. sense. Right, but that but, but that was the that was the general assumption was that she ran away because because you know as the one father said, you get, it's the government they wouldn't lie to us. Yeah, but that was days <laughs> later, and you know Will got his thing what a day and a half, like maybe uh, two days. Like, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm messing up the timeline, but it seemed like people held out hope for Barb a lot longer than they did Will. Yeah. It wasn't because she I mean, makes sense. She's so much the older. The American adults always believe the government. Always. That's wasn't right. It kind, wasn't like, it kind we of can always trust the government. Wasn't it kind of embarrassing for that town to have to redact the funeral? <laughs> you think about it. Oh, right. Who the hell did we bury? And I wonder what I the cover-up cover was for that. I didn't stop them. To hide his cover. Because clearly he's highly trained and didn't want to draw more attention to himself so he could get into the uh, the facility. Right. If he made a big stink about it, then it would have been harder for him to uh, to get closer. I just want to okay. know why they didn't so kill him right away. He lets them bury a dead body that's not really a body and causes an awful lot more pain and anguish for you know the people who are still looking for him. I.e. Joyce and Jonathan. Yeah, well, I think at the time he wasn't ready to um, reveal to them, like until he knew for sure what was going on. He he didn't want to give her like half information until he really knew that she wasn't crazy. Mm-hmm. He and probably the- also didn't think that he'd be in the facility quite as long as he was. Yeah. And then the show ends on Will vomiting up a slug. You know that plot's going to move at a snail's pace. 
Oh, well, I think you'd get that I, one. I'm glad right. we all acknowledge this, though, that Chris doesn't have to ask. All right, so so we're we're almost out of time. Um, so final thoughts on the sh- on the show. I have uh, a final question. What yeah. '80s movies would you guys like to see adapted into a season two storyline? Oh, as okay, like an homage or crossover. First one, I would yes. like to see Poltergeist. Represented how strongly feminine, and I would like to see Barb's eventual spirit coming out for revenge against all her friends who left her to die. <laughs> Monster Squad, that's my choice. Yeah, I would have said Monster Squad as well because that's pretty much one of my favorite, you know, movies of all time. But uh, oh, you know, let's you know because we have monsters already, let's throw some aliens in there. How about Flight of the Navigator? <laughs> Hmm. Aliens and time travel and Paul Rubens can't can't miss. How about Time Bandit? I'd love to see them go into another dimensional portal and end up going through all these funky time periods. Ooh, Stargate! Into- yeah. Oh, I was just thinking a little bit of a Back to the Future homage, but with a horror twist. That would be fun. Time Bandit, totally. See what John Claude Van Damme's doing. We get Time Cop. Oh, All right. Any any other final thoughts before we go to commercial? I those chicken well, pants. There are we're good. strong allusions, enough strong allusions that I believe you can safely say this takes place in the universe. I think so. I'll, I'll agree to that. What did he yeah, say? I'm sure it's only a matter of time before there's a crossover to confirm it. I yeah. want to agree with him, but I didn't hear it. What did he oh, say? He said it's connected to the Stephen King universe. Oh, I agree. Now I can yeah. agree with him. Yeah. And all, my final thoughts, thank the gods for Netflix. Yeah. I, and, and you know, that was... Eight, eight episodes was perfect. <laughs> I just, really want to, I just want to thank Netflix for uh, taking a chance when all the other networks said, no, this isn't good enough. Netflix has been doing that a lot lately. And, uh, you it's know, been they, paying they, off. Yeah, they, yeah. They picked up the grass. I could have seen AMC do it, but AMC would have wanted it to be a continuing series. Right. 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 That's the good thing about Netflix is they know how to do, like, just enough. You know? They, you know, they, and then if they do another season, you know, they, they know how to contain it, you know, yeah. they're not, they're not worried. They're, they're, they're for the binge watching crowd. So they don't have yeah. to draw it out. And, uh, yeah, they're I not think looking that, for ratings. Yeah, right. Exactly. They're looking for sales. Like the more shows they have, the more subscriptions they're going to get. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we're going to go to commercial, um, Thanks, thanks, Patsy, for being with us. Oh, absolutely. This is awesome. Yeah, this was a blast. Uh, you have to come on again sometime. I definitely will, and we'll have you guys on uh, on our show. Awesome. Sounds awesome. Okay, so uh, we're going to go to we're going to go to commercial, and then we'll be right back just to wrap up. All right. Well, that's about all the time we've got. Um, thanks again to Patsy for being with us this week. Thanks for having uh, Joy- me. Yeah, join us next week when we'll be joined by another returning guest. Our pal Matthew Denyon will be on to talk about some projects he alluded to on his last appearance. 
such as not Batman vs. not Godzilla, making some announcements about upcoming projects, and he'll be bringing along on the show uh, the artist for his book, Frankenstein's Monster Goes to Oz, Josh Torito. Um, and speaking of returning guests, um, we're about three months away from the, the end of our first year and the launch of our second year, and we've been... Uh, planning out some guests we've got um some on our invite list and we've got some already scheduled uh a lot of returning guests that were popular have been popular and uh and a lot of uh new guests um some surprises um so we're really excited about that and when we started the show i used to say that our guest list was aim high expect low and ivan used to hate that i said that uh now we've kind of set the bar where we aim high and expect high uh, so you can expect some great guests from us. Before we end, I want to thank our sponsor, Chotkeys. People can get a cheeseburger anywhere. They come to Chotkeys for the atmosphere and the attitude. That's what the flair is about. It's about fun. And a special thanks to Tiny White and the Deadites for our show's theme music, Leaf on a Stream. Thanks to all who listen. Remember to subscribe to and rate our show on iTunes. And as always, everything happens somewhere. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>